scripture reading comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, verses 29 to 46. This can be found on page 79 to 80 of your pew Bible. So that's Leviticus, chapter 13, verses 29 to 46. Leviticus 13, 29 to 46. If a man or woman has a sore on their head or chin, the priest is to examine the sore. And if it appears to be more than skin deep and the hair in it is yellow and thin, the priest shall pronounce them unclean. It is the defiling skin disease on the head or chin. But if, when the priest examines the sore, it does not seem to be more than skin deep and there is no black hair in it, Then the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine the sore, and if this has not spread and there is no yellow hair in it, and it does not appear to be more than skin deep, then the man or woman must shave themselves, except for the affected area, and the priest is to keep them isolated another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine the sore, and if it has not spread in the skin and appears to be no more than skin deep, the priest shall pronounce them clean. They must wash their clothes, and they will be clean. But if the sore does spread in the skin after they are pronounced clean, the priest is to examine them, and if he finds that the sore has spread in the skin, he does not need to look for yellow hair. They are unclean. If, however, the sore is unchanged so far as the priest can see, and if black hair has grown in it, the affected person is healed. They are clean, and the priest shall pronounce them clean. When a man or woman has white spots on the skin, the priest is to examine them, and if the spots are dull white, it is a harmless rash that is broken out on the skin, and they are clean. If a man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. If he has lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he is clean. But if he has a reddish-white sore on his bald head or forehead, it is a defiling disease breaking out on his head or forehead. The priest is to examine him, and if the swollen sore on his head or forehead is reddish-white like a defiling skin disease, the man is diseased and is unclean. The priest shall pronounce him unclean because of the sore on his head. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes and their hair be unkempt. They must uncover the lower part of their face and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. So it occurs to me as I sit here and listen to that scripture reading, probably what all of you are thinking. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. Yeah. (laughs) Pastor David may not be clean, but you know I am. (laughs) There are some advantages. Yeah. What I suppose you may actually be thinking is, boy, there's some parts of Scripture whose meaning is not immediately apparent or whose contemporary relevance is not immediately apparent. And we won't be able to get through all of Leviticus today, obviously, or the second half of Leviticus. We won't be able to cover all the detail. In fact, we probably won't even look at the detail of this particular text. Uh, but if you want to know more about it, 
the devotionals that I write will address some of it. The devotionals that I write. Now, I'm living day to day right now. I had a backlog and I have caught up to my backlog. So last week I got only three out of six written. So keep faith. You can find them on this website. If they're not there today, they may be there tomorrow. If they're not there tomorrow, they may be there Wednesday. And if they're not there Wednesday, I don't know what happens. Okay, we'll try. But because of a, books like Leviticus, you know, uh, some of these things are really a puzzle. Uh, there was a fellow who recently, A.J. Jacobs, he was an editor, a columnist, a humorist. He decided for an experiment... He was a non-observant Jew, but decided that for an experiment, and so he'd have something to write about, and he got a book out of it, he would live one year as an observant Jew. He was following all the laws. He, he wrote down all the laws in the Old Testament, and particularly in Leviticus. He made a tabulation. He came up to almost uh, 700 of them. I don't know, you know, the traditional number is 603, but he came up to 700 laws. And then he tried to observe them all. For an entire year. And some of them were quite a challenge. The, the biblical text says that a man is not to trim the corners of his beard. And he wasn't sure where the corners were. So he just didn't shave for the whole year. The biblical text says you can't wear clothes that are a blend. Poly cotton blend. So he just wore either wool or cotton robe for the entire year, and sandals. And he kind of didn't like to dress up anyway, so that was kind of convenient. Now, some of this became problematic because one of the biblical texts, this is a little bit indelicate, but hang with me, one of the biblical texts in the Bible says that you, that you can not sit on any seat that has been sat on by a menstruating woman. And his wife took offense at this, so she sat at that time a month on every seat in the house... So he had to go out and buy a portable stool so that he could, for his own home. And then, of course, on the subway, you never know, so he would take that stool with him wherever he went. And, you know, he was halfway through the year, and there was uh, one of the provisions that he thought he would never get to participate in. Because in the Old Testament, it says to stone adulterers. But one day he's down in Central Park and he's walking along in his robes and his, you know, his uh, sandals. So somebody ch- chats with him and says, well, you know, why are you dressed like this? And he explains. And then he mentioned a bit about stoning and adultery, that he couldn't do that, you know, because it seemed kind of crude. And so the fellow said, the old guy, 70 plus, not, uh, that he was in, in, in interviewing the old guy said to him, well, look, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And the guy took out his pocket full of stones and said, you know, pebbles. He said, well, I could. So the guy grabbed him and threw him at Jacob's. But he, he left one behind. So Jacob figured, fair enough. So he threw a stone at the adulterer. <laughs> and so he fulfilled that requirement from the Old Testament. <laughs> and he got a book out of it. The book is entitled The Year of Living Biblically. Ah, literal interpretation of the Old Testament, sure. But you know, some of this stuff is much more serious. And particularly as our culture drifts further in a certain direction, it becomes much more challenging. For example, the sexual laws in the Old Testament. And in Leviticus. 
So one parent in this congregation was telling me just this week that, that they were having a talk with their, was just telling me this week that they were having a talk with their kids and, and the eldest child said, oh, I can marry either a girl or a boy, a little kid. I can marry either a girl or a boy if I get married. And the younger sibling said, yeah, I can marry a boy or a girl too. And the mom tried to explain, well, in our family, girls marry boys and boys marry girls. But what do you tell a little kid about biblical sexuality so that they don't go off to to school or to their friends with a child who may have two moms or two dads and tell them, oh, no, that's sin. You can't do, you know, how do you, well, how do you explain this to little kids when you don't know what they're going to blurt out? It's not just little kids, is it? So, you know, Gordon College up here in the North Shore, Christian School in North Shore, is under investigation by their accrediting association. Because um, President Obama was putting out uh, presidential orders, executive orders, about uh, discrimination. And so the president of Gordon College signed on to, with a couple of other people, wrote a letter in to the uh, government, to Obama, and signed on requesting that Christian organizations be exempt from non-discrimination policies over sexual practice. Which was a courageous thing to do, but of course it had the, the inevitable backlash. So immediately, two towns in North Shore that used to use Gordon College students for their programs, like teacher education and training and uh, museum, canceled the contract with Gordon College as a protest. And then the accrediting association, although they've recently reaccredited Gordon College, decided to launch a reaccreditation process precipitously. And so Gordon College kind of held it off by saying, well, well, we'll have an internal discussion of this for a year, trying to let things calm down and hold it off. Now, it's not just Gordon College, but this is a real concern for all Christian colleges. So right now, churches are exempt. We don't know what the future will look like. But right now, churches have some free space because of the Constitution. But when you're a Christian corporation or a Christian educational institution, and the culture's values are different from the biblical values. Are you able to follow the biblical values, or do you have to follow the cultural values? So you would have heard about the Hobby Lobby lawsuit, or you hear about this one with Gordon College. And this is an issue that Christians face today. What laws do we follow? What Christian affirmations can we follow? But it's not just that. You would have it in your own experience, regardless of laws. How do you communicate Christian values, or how do you respond when colleagues or family members get offended by Christian values? Now, this is a much bigger question than we can fully address this morning, but we'll take a look at some pieces of it particularly because we can't avoid it from the book of Leviticus. Now, just before we get there, let's review where we've been coming from, particularly for those of you who are here for the first time or don't come regularly. What we're doing now over this semester and next semester, what we're doing over this year, is to trace the story that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is telling us one, you could call it a meta-narrative, one story from beginning to end. 
And we're going to trace that week by week. So just to catch up to where we are now, really briefly. Genesis 1 and 2, God made a beautiful world. And Genesis 3, sin came in and messed that world up. Sin came in and interfered the relationship between man and, and God. Sin came up and interfered with the relationship between spouses, families, children, siblings. Sin came in and messed up the relationship between man and the world. And ever since Genesis 3, God has been slowly working to, to put things right. The first step in putting things right, God made promises to Abraham. God made three promises. He promised Abraham descendants, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He promised Israel would be the focus of the way he redeemed the world. He promised descendants. Then he promised them a homeland. They were slaves, and he was going to bring them out of Egypt and bring them into their own land. And he promised that eventually, this was not about Israel. This is really about the world. And then eventually he's going to use Israel, was his original promise. He would use Israel to bless the world. And so the story started. God promised Abraham descendants. And in the book of Genesis, all Genesis really does, the main thing it does is tells how Abraham got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Then he promised Abraham a homeland. But to get Abraham's family to survive, they had to migrate to Egypt. So here they are in Egypt and they're slaves. And so God's promised them homeland, so he, he pulls them out of slavery in Egypt. And we expect the story to continue. God brings them into the new land, but the, the story stops. So the last few weeks we've been looking at, why did the story stop here? It will continue later on, but why did it stop? And what happens when it stops? And God stopped the story because he had made all sorts of promises and gave all sorts of blessings, but he said, look, this has got to be a reciprocal relationship. I initiate it, but you've got to respond. Any relationship is reciprocal. So God stops and says, look, here's, here's what I require of you if you're going to continue with my blessings. First, he said, I care about how you live. And he gave the Ten Commandments. And then he said, if I'm going to be with you, I need a place where you can be safe, where I can be safe. So God wanted to build a tab- God wanted them to build a tabernacle because God would dwell inside the tabernacle. They would stay outside the tabernacle. That way, as sinners go into the presence of a holy God, he doesn't have to strike them dead. And God's free from defilement, and they're free from death, from execution. So God requires a place where he can live. And then God tells them in the first half of Leviticus, the first ten chapters of Leviticus, is all about how to run that place where God's going to dwell. What should the sacrifices be like? How should the priests conduct themselves? How should that thing run? And now in today's passage, he tells them something else. Really, in the fir- Leviticus only makes two points. The whole book of Leviticus, including the part we read, even though it seems so obscure, it only makes two points. The first point he made... A couple of weeks ago, we looked at it, about sacrifices and priests. The first point is this. God cares how we live when we're at church. He cares about how we worship. He cares about how we conduct ourselves with each other while we're here on Sunday. That's the first point of Leviticus chapter 1 to 10. God cares about how we live on Sunday. And the rest of Leviticus from chapter 11 and following, is really 
God cares about how we live outside the church. There you go. Thank you. Maybe. Excuse me. I'm working this out. I'm newbie. This is technology. Okay. What God cares about. God cares about how they live Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday. And then all we go through in chapters uh, 11 through 27, what God cares about, about how they live. What does he care about? Number one is he cares about the food they eat. And he talks about clean food and unclean food. He cares about blood and when they get contaminated by blood. He cares about childbirth. He cares about uh, surface deformities. Maybe it's the uh, skin that's deformed. Maybe it's the clothes that are deformed. Maybe it's the house. You know, there's a whole chapter on skin disease, mold, and mildew. Because God cares about uh, deformities on the surface of things. There's a chapter, or there's two chapters on deformity. There's a chapter on contamination by bodily fluids. Bodily fluids belong inside your body. What happens when they leak out? And there's a chapter about how to clean for that. God cares about atonement. And you've got a section here. If you've run afoul of all these previous laws, God cares how we live Monday to Saturday. God cares about the food we eat, the the blood. God cares about surface deformities. God cares about bodily fluids. Then if, if any of those things have contaminated you, chapter 16, God provides for atonement. God authorizes sacrifices, but they have to be done in a certain way, and then the, he refuses to allow people to eat blood. God cares about uh, who we have sex with and when we have sex. God cares about economic justice and honesty. He cares about how we treat each other economically. God cares about family relationships, and he cares really deeply about incest. God cares about worship, and who can, who's qualified to worship. God cares about economic justice, and God shows his care about these things by rewarding and punishing. This is really the overview of all the rest of the book of Leviticus. And the devotionals will take care of some of this, explain some of it. But here's the point. Here's the central point of the book of Leviticus. God cares about how we worship, chapters 1 to 10. God cares about how we live, chapters 11 to 27. Now, some of these laws seem odd to us. There's actually some sensibility to some of them. Even though they seem odd to us, they make sense historically. But you'll have to read the devotionals to figure that out. What happens in the New Testament is, God doesn't care about all of these, not all of these things anymore. You see, in Jesus, 
Jesus disallows the He doesn't care about food we eat anymore. You see Jesus healing people that have bloody discharges. Why? He brings cleansing and healing. Jesus solves the problems of Leviticus. Jesus heals lepers. Again, he's solving the problem of Leviticus. So that these, it's not leprosy. Jesus heals the problem of skin disease. Because he wants to send a message that this doesn't matter anymore. Jesus provides atonement because this one does matter. Jesus still cares. And the New Testament still cares deeply about who we have sex with and when we have sex. Jesus and New Testament warn us about economic justice and living honestly. The New Testament still cares about our family lives and about sex and incest within the context of a family. The New Testament still cares about half the stuff we do in worship, but it releases us from the other half. But the New Testament cares about economic justice. The New Testament also promises reward and punishment. Uh, the, the basic point I want to make is we don't have to follow all the laws of Leviticus, but God still cares. God still cares about our worship on Sunday. God cares about how we live from Monday to Saturday. There was a recent research project, and I haven't delved into the details of it, but I'll give you the general thrust of it. The recent research project asked this. Are religious people, and it surveyed Christians that go to church, it surveyed uh, Jews that go to temple, it surveyed Muslims that go to mosque, are religious people, on average, better than non-religious people? Are those who go to houses of worship, typically, on average, better than people who don't go to houses of worship? And the answer was a qualified yes. They do generally live better. The qualification was on the particular day that they go to worship. The other six days, not so much. And the message of Leviticus overall is this. Even if God doesn't care anymore about some of these particulars, even if now he doesn't care about the food we eat, even if now having a child doesn't mean you can't go worship in the sanctuary for 40 days or 80 days, even if now eczema, you can still come to church, even if now bodily discharges, you don't have to wait 24 hours before you're worshiping anymore, even if we don't have to follow all the rules of sacrifice, God still cares about two things, not just one. He doesn't just care about how we act and how we live while we're together here in church. God cares about the other days. He cares about justice. He cares about sex. He cares about economics. He cares about families. And he cares about worship. God cares about all these things. The question is, how we live when what God cares about is different from our cult, what our culture cares about. And I don't think we're ever going to be able to solve this entirely. I think this is going to be a worse problem as time moves on, because our culture will get more militant about what it values. 
But I'll give you four reflections on how we live with God's values in a culture that doesn't observe God's values. Four preliminary reflections to start us thinking. First of all, I don't think these values can ever be acceptable. Uh, We have a different framework. You look at our culture, and the cultural framework basically is the maximum emotional satisfaction of consenting adults. Our culture protects children. Our culture, uh, at least the live children, children outside the womb our culture protects. Our culture more or less protects animals. But our culture basically says consenting adults can do whatever they want pretty much. Not entirely. One of the chapters in Leviticus that's about sex, let's talk about that for a moment. Because our culture says uh, same-sex relationships are okay. Same-sex marriage and all that. And the Bible doesn't say, you know, disagrees with that. But the Bible spends a whole lot more time, Leviticus 18 spends a whole lot more time on uh, incest. And it's very detailed. You, you, you can't have sex with your father's, with your stepmother. You can't have sex with your father's aunt. You can't have step with your father, sex with your father's stepchildren. You can't have sex with your father's, uh, with your mother's aunt. And he goes through all these details about avoiding incest. And for some reason right now, our culture still says that incest is disgusting. Uh, I, I'm not sure why, because our one proposition is consenting adults can do whatever they want as long as it's not incest. But mostly, biblical values are not going to correspond to cultural values because we don't say consenting adults can do whatever they want, right? We, say, we, start with a di- we start from a different place and it takes us to a different place. We start with, we must live the way God calls us to live. We have a higher authority that guides our lives. And if that higher authority is not acknowledged, then your path will be a different road you walk. And unless people are willing to acknowledge God, we're not going to get them to walk the same path that we're walking. A second point I would want to make, particularly about the sexual, because that's particularly the, the, the controversial issue today. A particular point I would want to make about that is often we're viewed as retro because of our sexual moral standards. This is very odd. When God put forward these sexual standards in Leviticus, it wasn't retro. It was innovative. God said, look, your Canaanite neighbors, they live like this. You can't. You're my people. So it was reformative, not retro, not primitive. And in the New Testament, a Greek culture and Roman culture was quite flagrant sexually. Not just uh, sexual immorality uh, before marriage or, or adultery, but also pedophilia, uh, homosexuality. And so when the New Testament said, you used to live this way, but now before God you can no longer. You now belong to God. You can't live this way anymore. So it, in the New Testament, it was times, it was never retro. It was reformative. So let's not be dismissed as retro. Uh, we're reformative. Thirdly, I'd say this. So the first point I would make is that God's values are not going to be acceptable to our culture until they accept God. 
direction from him. Secondly, our values are not conservative or old-fashioned. Our values are reformative. Thirdly, we can challenge the world's own framework. We can ask, on what basis do you make these determinations? Why is it that, I mean, still our culture says some sexual relationships are okay and other sexual relationships are not okay. Still our culture says that. They just differ on where you draw the line, differ from Christian values or biblical values. Okay, we draw our line here because Jesus said, because Scripture says. Why do you draw the line where you draw the line? And our line is theoretically going to stay the same place for all time. Where, how do you, where are your lines shifting from one time to another depending on how culture feels about it? We can challenge our culture and say, what basis is there for you to say these are legal activities, these are moral values? What absolute basis do you have for making that point? You know, our culture permits heterosexuality outside marriage. Our culture permits homosexuality within marriage. Our culture permits homosexuality outside marriage. Our culture is quite ambivalent about adultery. That's the one sexual activity, you know, before marriage, okay. After marriage, there's quite a bit of ambivalence through surveys show in our culture about adultery. Our culture is opposed to incest, bestiality, and pedophilia. But on what basis do you say these things are okay and these things are not okay, other than consensus? And as we've seen, consensus this decade will differ from consensus last decade. What kind of moral basis is there for this? So I think there's three places where we can challenge our culture. Well, first, we can't expect our culture to see things the way we do. Secondly, we are not conservative or old-fashioned. Thirdly, I would say we can challenge the world's moral framework. But the fourth one is the most important for us, I think. The world can challenge our moral framework. And, And here's how. God calls us to many things. Leviticus calls us to many things. Leviticus calls us not just to sexual purity. Leviticus calls us to prioritize economic justice. It calls us to care for the widow. It calls us to care for the orphan. It calls us to care for the immigrant, the alien. And it's perfectly legitimate for the world to challenge us. Why would we get preoccupied with same-sex marriage among the host of other things that go on in our culture? Why would we get preoccupied with same-sex marriage, for example, without being preoccupied with lotteries, which are attacks on the poor and highly destructive to the poor and disenfranchised? Why would we get preoccupied with premarital sex and not preoccupied with casinos? which are destructive to the local communities and highly destructive to the poor and addictive. Why would we get preoccupied with adultery and not fuss about credit cards, which again take advantage of the poor? And it's not just the poor. But I think our world can legitimately challenge us if we're preoccupied with sexual values and not with all these other values in Leviticus. Or if we're preoccupied with freedom of worship 
and not preoccupied with the welfare of our society. See, Leviticus tells us God cares about two things, and we need to care about two things. Leviticus cares about how we worship and how we live. And when it cares about how we live, it cares about who we have sex with, but it cares about so much more. And it calls us to care about so much more. And if you want details on that more, pray for me this week as I try to get down to writing those devotionals. It'll be there. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to be with us, that we might worship you faithfully, but that we might also live faithfully for you, and that our faithfulness will extend beyond the people that we have sex with, but it will extend to how we spend money and who we care for, who we protect, who we support. Father, we ask that by our lives we might honor you, not just on Sunday, but during the week. Not just with our sex lives, but with the whole of our lives. We ask you to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.